Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Sabrina Marie Vera. Sabrina lives with a rare blood disorder, and she's going to tell us all about it, and I'm going to try to pronounce it here. It's called HHT, which is short for hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. Did I do it right, Sabrina? Yes, close ah! to <laughs> Oh, oh boy. That's, that's the most nervous part of the interview over for me. So now we can focus on you. (laughs) So Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to hear more about your story. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to have the conversation. Yes. So am I. So this is the first time we're going to be talking about this condition. So you're going to give us a little background, but let's just start at the very beginning of your health journey, Sabrina, because you're a young woman. Um, and this is, as we mentioned, a hereditary condition. So can you tell us when you first realized that you were sick, that you had a diagnosis of chronic illness and what that looked like for you? Yes, absolutely. So actually my family, obviously they've had it for generations. We didn't know we had HHC until my godfather who married into the family. um, He's a physics professor and he sort of put two and two together where he saw, okay, Sabrina's bleeding from her nose. Her mom's bleeding from her nose. Her grandmother's bleeding. There's something, you know, larger here. And so then we went to a genetics testing lab and that's when we found out that we have HHT, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, a mouthful that I still can't. Well, I'm glad that you're pronouncing it again for people, guys. It's <laughs> HHT, just HHT. <laughs> from now on. Um, yes. <laughs> so I was, I was young. I was about five years old when we found out and they told us about it. They told us how it affects about 1.4 million people worldwide. And essentially what mm-hmm. it is that it's a blood disease and it causes defects in the development of the capillaries all throughout the body. So basically when a vein and an artery meet up there, instead of is a capillary, there is an AVM which is an ulterior venous malformation. 
And it's basically like the way I like to think about it is if your arteries and your veins were tubes throughout the body getting oxygenated blood to and from, a tangle is there. And so the blood goes through slower. Like if you have like a water hose and you step on it, Mm -hmm. the water doesn't come out with as much pressure. It's the same thing. And so to keep the AVMs from growing, they do a procedure where they embolize the AVMs with metal coils. They're no longer metal, interestingly. They used to be metal. I have some that are metal and I have some that are made out of this uh, new type of plastic. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the metal has been linked to causing pain, known as pleurisy, which I will definitely touch upon later. But um, yeah, I got my first surgery about a year after I found out. I was six years old when I got my first surgery. And ever since then, I've been getting my body scanned uh, at least once a year, sometimes once every two years. I scan my brain, my lungs, and my liver because I have AVMs throughout each of those organs. And it's also very common for HHTP patients to get it in their intestines. Um, and people can get them anywhere. They can develop AVMs all over in uh, different organs. Obviously, the research is, is unfortunately lacking. It's definitely not enough. It's getting better. It's been huge. It's been a huge difference um, in you know, my lifetime that I've seen. But there's still a lot of gaps in the information. Right. But that's, uh, that's about the main yeah. Part so of it. it sounds like also, cause like we've got tons of capillaries all over our bodies, right? Yes. I mean, is it sort of an endless number of surgeries that you could be going through? And are these like laparoscopic? Are they um, invasive surgeries? What is that whole? Cause it sounds to me like you're going under the knife constantly because of this. Well, thankfully, no. Um, it's actually not going under, under the knife. The procedure itself, they go in through a main vein before it actually was the main artery they would go in through the main artery right between the thigh like that thigh inner thigh area i think there are also some procedures where they go in around the neck area Um, but yes exactly you go into those main veins now which is a lot better because with the main artery being an open scar if that scar or stitch was to tear you could bleed out to death now they do the vein which is amazing and they go in through the vein with some stuff. I'm sorry, I don't even... It's like, well, it's micro stuff. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's also like, this is life-saving stuff for you, but like, this is a very complex microsurgery, it sounds like. Very complex micro... Exactly, because they're going through these tiny little veins to go coil these, um, you know, AVMs, which can get really big, actually. I got surgery this past January, and um, I'm definitely going to touch upon this a little bit more later, but essentially, during the surgery... I remember very clearly, I wasn't fully out. Um, They were making sure that I was still awake enough through the procedure so that I could take a deep breath in. And I felt, they said I would feel it. Um, I did feel them sort of maneuvering around in my chest. This is the weirdest feeling Mm -hmm. ever. Kind of like something's under your skin, but not in your muscle, definitely not your bone. So, you know, I was feeling it. And um, the surgery took a little longer than predicted because I ended up having five four of which were about 10 millimeters. And for reference, they typically flag AVMs at three millimeters. So these were big yeah. ones. They were big ones. And they can also create feeding. They can grow uh, feeding arteries coming out of them. Wow. Yeah, so they need to be treated quickly. Exactly. Treated quickly. And um, when I was younger, I had a lot of, I did have a lot more surgeries when I was younger, which makes sense because you're still growing. Right. It starts to slow down once you have your more adult internal body. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I had a lot. I would go every year, but it was actually not a bad experience because I was the center of attention and I loved the uh, pediatric hospital that I went to was like so amazing. I miss, I missed it actually. I wish I could get yeah. surgery. 
in the pediatric hospital. Well, it's interesting you say that actually, cause you're a young woman. I mean, you are in that sort of patient population who's grown out of pediatric care and mm-hmm. into adult care. And there's often uh, a lack of uh, sort of a through line, isn't there, for patients who are going from pediatric to adult care. It's often when the care gets shifted around or things get missed. So it sounds like you're also having to step up even more as your own advocate as an adult now too, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have become my own advocate in the more recent years. I have to particularly pay respect or honor to the fact that I have a college degree now. I have my bachelor's from Pomona College, which is such a privilege. Mm. But growing up when I was younger, my mom was really my main advocate. And I remember just growing up and seeing what she had to go through to not be condescended to by doctors, obviously, because the research has gotten, the research has increased a lot within the past five years but you know for when I was five years old and we were going through this there was not a lot out there and so my mom would have to basically ensure that doctors weren't rendering her sickness invisible and Mm. you know my mom dropped out of high school when she was 17 because she was pregnant so we obviously are on such different education levels and it was just very unfortunate I didn't get it when I was that young but now that I reflect upon it I'm like that shouldn't have happened at all. And I can't help but to think it's because of, you know, the intersections that rare disabilities have with gender and race, class, education, et cetera. Mm. And so- I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're bringing up those intersectionalities because this is something we definitely want to cover here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm interested as well, because, uh, you know, you mentioned that HHT affects an estimated 1.4 million people. So this is a super rare disease. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, specific to any kind of racial or ethnic uh, you know, population, or is it something that can affect anyone as well? I actually, yeah, I, I was thinking about this a lot with the earlier, and they used to think ADHD was a young white boy's disease, right? right. It always kind of begins like that, where they make this assumption that it only affects white people. Mm-hmm. And to be fully honest, um, you know, the, the community groups that we have and the different HHD conferences and the Facebook pages and everything, they are very white dominant. Um, like dominated by white faces and white people who have it and white advocates. And it is pretty heartbreaking, but we're seeing changes in that, particularly with uh, more people knowing that they could have this disease and it could be something as simple as having a nosebleed Mm. or having certain pains in your chest or having fatigue. Or if you take, you know, a blood thinner like Advil or you eat something spicy and then you notice you're bleeding, stuff Mm. like that. And I just think, you know, obviously within communities of color, especially I'll speak on behalf of like the Latinx community, there are these sort of stereotypes about not wanting to be sick or not really believing people who are sick or not admitting that these illnesses are real and exist. And I've seen that even within my own family in Puerto Rico, who um, we've had people pass away from things like lung cancer, but what if it was actually HHT and AVMs in the lungs? Right. You know, they want to investigate more into it. And obviously healthcare out there is so different And so it's this lack of awareness and exposure. I know it could affect anyone. Everyone has blood vessels. Everyone has veins and arteries. Obviously, it's rare and genetic. But actually, there is this statistic. 90% of people with HHT are undiagnosed. And there's this other huge population that's misdiagnosed. I, you know, I've had doctors in the past tell my mom it could be cancer, it could be this, you know, when she was younger. Um, And that's such a scary thing to be told as well. It's sort of like being (laughs) handed a death sentence when, you know, because we know cancer in one way, but... Um, I mean, it's very interesting. Like this is something that doctors know so little about that they're banding mm-hmm. about other potential diagnoses that can be really harmful from a, an emotional perspective too. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm really glad you bring up this point about um, the advocacy spaces for HHT being white dominant, because I think that's probably true in advocacy in general, right? You know, there, oh, yes. there's a lot of white dominance in patient advocacy because white people have heretofore been the most privileged to speak their truths and share their stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering, you're a woman of color who is living with this rare disease. You know, you've mentioned that you've certainly seen your mom go through uh, adverse experiences in the healthcare system and your family as well. What about your experience in particular? Because it sounds like you were diagnosed so young. Have you had any of those adverse experiences yourself, yourself or have you even experienced like pains and things or are these things that you've been able to sort of work around and avoid because you've been able to see the bigger picture from a younger age? I think it's a bit of a combination of both. I do have to admit because I am able-bodied, neurotypical, I have all my five senses and everything. Mm. I don't feel like I face direct prejudice because of my disease intersecting with my uh, race. Mm. I do have, I think I've had a lot of issues with being a woman and being femme presenting in these spaces that are very male dominant and having to explain, no, I don't take medicine for HHG. There's no cure. Mm. And having to have these arguments and feeling very condescended. It's gotten better, like I said, because of education level, also growing older and also, frankly, putting my foot down and saying, no, like X, Y, Z, or this. Yeah. <laughs> so ensuring that, you know, my voice personally is heard. Um, and yeah, I think in the past, I've I felt issues with being rendered invisible and not being believed. And um, people just thinking, I don't know what I'm talking about. And yeah. regarding pain, or I should say men, not thinking, right. thinking that I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to be honest. It's, it definitely feels very gendered. And mm. I've seen it with my mother too. So Um, regarding the pain, actually, I don't know if I might've mentioned this earlier, but the pain in the chest caused Mm. by the metal coils, I I touched upon it. So that pain didn't really have a name and there wasn't that much awareness that it could be directly related to pulmonary AVMs and HHT. But I remember growing up, my mother always telling doctors that I had it and she had it. And they continuously said to her, no, that's not Mm. possible. And now when we look at this information and this new research, people are taking more initiative to have these questions answered. And there's just more awareness when you have these groups coming together and creating community and saying, does anyone else get chest in their pain the day before it rains? Yeah, I do. Me too. You start seeing these, um, you know, patterns and putting pressure on people to recognize it. And now we know that about 15% of HHT patients actually do suffer from this pain called pleurisy. Um, and pleurisy, a lot of people experience pleurisy, but they kind of denied, well, not kind of, they blatantly denied in the past to my mother and I that it would be caused by coils, metal coils. And then that led to them changing it from metal to this new plastic. Wow. Um, even though I still do get really bad pain. So now I have a decent amount of coils. I've honestly lost track. This is like, this was like my sixth surgery that I got this year. Wow. Um, and I get really sharp pain. It's really bad pleurisy. So I'm thinking there still needs to be more research into this. What yeah. is it that's causing this pleurisy? Because I don't think it's just the metal coils. Mm. Um, yeah, it could be the condition itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, AVMs could cause really bad pain. People don't think that, but there's got to be something, you know, this bottom line here. They have to believe us and, and validate that we are feeling it. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you also mentioned, you know, um, that when it's raining, you know, you can might get more chest pains that like the weather can affect uh, your mm-hmm. condition. So I'm wondering as well, what a typical day is looking like for you. I know there's no such thing as actual typical day here, but you know, how are you balancing the demands of work and life as you're managing your symptoms and sort of being aware of them so that you can prevent them? Yes, absolutely. I will see a typical day has a lot of blood involved for me from my nose, a lot of nosebleeds. Although, yeah. funny story, when I was maybe 13, I had a telangiectasia, which is uh, basically an external manifestation of an AVM. It's like a little red spot, but the AVM can start to protrude from it and become mm-hmm. external as well, and it can bleed. Wow. I had one on the bottom of my toe, and it would literally bleed out like a spout of water. It would <gasps> wow. Be- and it was incredibly funny. Um, I had to get it cauterized, which was, you know, fine. I haven't had any issues with it since then. But, you know, stuff like that. Like we, HHC patients, we call ourselves blood brothers and sisters. And it is really a blood disease. I, I bleed a lot. Um, every morning I say I bleed. And a little before bed I bleed. It feels like clockwork at this point. But it, yeah. it's definitely triggered to uh, something as simple as sneezing or, you know, moving my nose like that, washing my face. If the water's too hot, if I eat like ginger with sushi or something, there's a lot of different triggers for it. But I think that naturally it just kind of comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the main thing. And like I mentioned earlier, the pleurisy, the migraines have been getting a little worse because I, like I mentioned, I do have AVMs in my brain. I got mm-hmm. it scanned this past year and I have three two of which haven't grown since the last scan, which is an absolute blessing. One of which is approaching six millimeters. And so oh, they, man. they would need to take care of that. They do. The unfortunate thing is um, about 1% of people worldwide actually suffer from cerebral AVMs. Wow. And so you're in the rare category of rare. I am, unfortunately. Um, I am. My brother was. He actually passed away from cerebral AVMs. He had a really bad seizure when he was 17, actually up until his death, he was having seizures every day. It was horrific. Um, He just lived in a lot of pain. And that's why I'm saying, you know, and I'm sure so many people with rare invisible diseases will say this, but there's a spectrum and Mm. diseases manifest so differently externally and physically for everyone who could have that same illness. Mm. And so, you know, for me, it's a headache here and there, but for my brother, it was his life. For my cousin Priscilla, it was also a big chunk of her life. Um, she is now confined to a wheelchair. She's blind in her right eye. Half of her face is numb. She can't use it to speak correctly or clearly. Wow. Her life is completely different than mine. And we all have cerebral AVMs. It's just different severity, different manifestation, and also different times. My cousin Priscilla is the oldest. Okay. My uh, brother is the second oldest, and I'm the youngest by about 10 years. So it's interesting to see with time changing, research increasing, visibility, et cetera, things have been a lot easier to manage. Um, and also too, I think just internally, my AVMs haven't grown. That's a miracle, it feels like, but I also think it's because, you know, I used to run track and field and cross country and I knew, okay, I have this blood disease. Let me take care of what's in my control and try to run if I can, even though, you know, I would lose every single race ever because I was out of breath and fatigued from this blood mm-hmm. disease, but I did it. And I think that also is something you know, especially people of color with disabilities that they don't know about them. It's, it's so important for us to have access to having, you know, programs for healthcare mm-hmm. and insurance, obviously, but also just like taking care of yourself and not, you know, having to live in a food desert, being able to have access to healthy food, having a school that has programs where you can do things like run track and field. Yeah. Um, 
slight tangent. <laughs> no, we're going to get into more of that soon too. But I, I'm interested as well in, in your family relationships too, because as you're saying, like, and it's interesting for those, I mean, obviously people are listening to this interview, but like periodically you're also dabbing your nose with a tissue because you're getting your nosebleeds and stuff. And yeah. it's, it's, but it's interesting because it's just such, so much a part of who you are and mm-hmm. there's no need to apologize for it. You know, it's just the kind of thing that, that we just get used to, isn't it? But I'm, I'm interested yes. in those family relationships and, and whether this diagnosis, especially because it's a hereditary one and so many people in your family seem to have it. And because you've advocated for one another in so many ways, do you think mm-hmm. it's something that's also brought you guys closer as a family? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, so HHT runs on my mom's side and I've always felt that did create a natural closeness with my mom's side. Not that I don't love my father's side, but it's just, diff- it's just a very different sort of shared feeling. It's the type of feeling where, you know, I'll go over to my uncle. So all of my mom's siblings have it and her mother has it, which is actually wow. quite rare. Usually it affects 50% of children, not a hundred percent. But with my mom's siblings and herself, it did affect all of them. So I will go to my uncle Felix's house. He suffers from HHG very, very badly. And he gets really, really bad nosebleeds. And so I'll go over. I remember this past Christmas, I went over and it was in a very, a very emotional Christmas because we just lost someone in the family. And, you know, I just got very, very emotional and overwhelmed. I started crying a little bit, but the nosebleed that came with it was incredibly bad. And it felt so nice to have them just come over and like, here's your ice pack. Here's a bunch of tissue. Use this entire garbage can for the tissue. Don't worry. We'll clean up the blood that dripped. Don't worry about it. Versus, you know, Sometimes when I'm out in public and I get a nosebleed, I get so embarrassed. There's been times where I have bled on people. <laughs> I've sure. bled food. I've bled and stained people's beds. It's just so embarrassing. I try to hide it when I bleed and just be conscious because also blood is not the safest thing. You don't want to have just blood around. Um, and so when I'm with my family who also suffers from the disease, we do feel closer by virtue of just having that empathy that is hard to you know find with people with rare diseases and also to just the um, community, which I'll talk a bit more about later, but the community online that I've been able to foster has been amazing. And we encourage people to post photos of the nosebleeds or videos of Mm -hmm. it because- To normalize it. Normalize it, exactly. I've posted a few, I've posted one video of me bleeding and the amount of blood, but it's nothing near what I've had in the past. Like, you know, I was, when I was in Puerto Rico this past winter, I was having a bad nosebleed and all I had was an empty bottle of rum. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I had to bleed into the bottle and save wow. it in there. And I looked at it, I'm like, this is literally almost full. So wow. on average, I just see a lot of blood. I, you know, sometimes when I meet people, I'm like, are you sensitive to blood at all? Cause I don't mm. know if we can be friends. <laughs> right. Like, do you pass out when you see blood? <laughs> yeah. That might be a but that's, that's an interesting thing too. Cause like talking about chronic illness and friendships and in relationships outside mm-hmm. your family as well, because that's something where you're obviously very open about who you are mm-hmm. and what you go through. But you know, there are got, there've got to be people who maybe aren't as open about it or maybe don't have the diagnosis, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how that then affects their relationships. If, they do feel a stigma attached to this condition. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. exactly. And that's the other thing too. There's a lot of fatigue and people might perceive, especially black and brown folks with HHC or other diseases. Oh, you're lazy or this or mm-hmm. that. And it's like, no, I'm just really fatigued, especially, you know, if they have AVMs and they don't know, you're not getting the proper amount of oxygenated blood throughout your body. It's slowed, yeah. it's slowed down immensely because of these AVMs. So you're going to be more tired. Your body's working twice as hard to work at a normal level. 
Um, and so I think that might be one thing. I'm very blessed. My friends all know the MO. I have friends where they carry um, non-anti-inflammatory, so NSAIDs like Advil and other blood thinners that are um, for to treat pain. I have friends that carry around Tylenol specifically because you can take Tylenol if you have a blood disorder and you don't want your blood to be running, you can take Tylenol. And they know that, or maybe they'll have like a little packet of tissue with them. I'm yeah. very, very lucky to be surrounded by such... Um, people who accept it a hundred percent for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And what about those situations where you've had to, I mean, it sounds like this is something that maybe your mom like had to deal with more growing up um, or that you've faced more as an adult, particularly in your medical care. But what about those experiences where you've been confronted and forced to validate the existence of your diagnosis to people who just didn't understand it? How, how do those situations look? Is it you putting your foot down and saying, no, this is in my chart. No, this is who I am. Or is it, you know, do you have to explain to people what, what HHT is? How do these situations manifest? Yeah, I actually went through something like that when I was getting my wisdom teeth removed. I mentioned mm-hmm. it in sight passing earlier, but I had a male doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not a white male. He was a male of color. And that's when I felt, I don't know if this is necessarily racial prejudice because we have literally the same brown skin, mm-hmm. but I'm feeling it's a bit about my gender intersecting with the fact that I have this rare disease that you don't know anything about, but you also don't think I don't know anything about it, which is Mm. funny because I have it and I've been living with it for 22 years. And that was what I mentioned earlier in passing when he kept asking me, what do you take for your disease? Mm. I don't take anything. And I told, okay, I take, I actually take birth control so that I don't get my period. Um, because Ah. I I never, I don't take the, uh, placebos. I don't, I skip those. And take it. And I haven't got my period in about two years. So I told him that I'm like, okay, I do this. I don't know if that has anything to do with my teeth. Uh, <laughs> I, I take Tylenol if I have issues and then I get pulmonary embolizations, which have been fine. I'm up to date. Um, mm. I didn't know what else to tell him. And it just kept going in circles. And interestingly enough, every other person in that room, other than the doctor was a woman and they mm. all kind of, it, it was just this tension in the air. They all saw that we were arguing and it was getting quite heated. We were almost yelling at each other and I was not going to sit there and leave because I had the worst pain ever with those wisdom teeth coming in. Mm. And I know that there are telangiectasies in my mouth that could bleed out. And just, there was a lot of risk factors. So I wasn't going to sit there and get turned away. And so, you know, I'm very privileged to have insurance. I had everything I needed. He just didn't get my disease. Yeah. And like I said earlier, he didn't know anything about it. And he just kept wanting to assume that I didn't know anything about it. It ended up being fine because um, I can stand my ground. I've done like six years of debating. <laughs> so I yes. was there and stay there. And, and you're, you're going to law school as well. So this is like, yeah. this is your wheelhouse for sure. I was like, fight. Yeah. <laughs> gloves on. Like I was ready to go. He actually did a beautiful job on my mm. surgery and I didn't have any pain afterwards. It was great, but it took a lot of emotional labor to get there. Right. And that was, that was actually one of the first times I really felt that. And I think it'll be happening to me a lot more in the future, also because, as so has been the theme of this, it's an invisible disability. Yeah. And there are always going to be people, whether it's the, oh, you're being lazy, or are you sure it's that bad? Or, well, at least it's not this XYZ thing. It will come up. I know it will. But I'm very grateful that I have the language and the experience and now the resources, right? Like the statistics, the hard numbers to deal with it. That's not what my mom had. She didn't have that at all. If anything, she went through really bad discrimination with, you know, getting told it was something possibly religious. 
religious. Oh <laughs> my god. There might have been a little bit of the devil in her or something. Like, oh great. You know. Yeah. So an exorcism, that'll solve your problems. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. Wow. Well, and it's interesting too, because, you know, I like to ask everyone on the show about either their privilege or prejudice um, in the healthcare system. And it sounds like for you, as you've mentioned, this is more of a gender issue that maybe if you were a white man telling someone that you had, telling a practitioner or otherwise that you had this illness, you might be taken more seriously, right? For sure. I wouldn't doubt it. (laughs) Yeah. Do you also think, I mean, related to that, do you think that gender and racial bias and inequality in the healthcare system should be considered a public health crisis? Is that something that is causing enough problems that people are getting sick and dying because of it? I mean, absolutely. There are entire podcasts on this question alone. And I think people who don't want to have those conversations or won't agree with that, they're definitely a part of the problem and they're very privileged and they're probably a white man. Um, Yes, (laughs) that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, it's one of those, the proof is in the pudding. Like when you Mm. see the disproportionate amount of people, black women specifically, who are not being believed in, you know, giving birth or even my own mother, um, you know, we're Puerto Rican, we're brown. And this was in what, like the 90s, my mother was giving birth to my brother. And this was before she knew she had HHC and she was bleeding so much. And they kind of just were leaving her there and they didn't Mm. give her medication. They didn't, you know, she had to go home, take care of it with my grandmother with these home remedies. You know, they didn't even have like a kitchen at the time. They were warming up water, doing you know, using trash bags. It was crazy to hear these stories. And that is definitely because of um, this intersection with racial Mm -hmm. inequality, the healthcare system, and this being a public health crisis. And now we're seeing this with COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. Just, I actually have two very close members to me of my family. They're both elders, both of them Puerto Rican, recently just this year have passed away from COVID. And it's- I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely hard to find out, you know, you grow up with these people that are so close to you and you think about how quickly that just this virus took them and you can't help to think, yeah, and they're both Puerto Rican. Um, mm. And to, to see this as being something close to you in a public health crisis and seeing, you know, groups of white people who are protesting against wearing masks and against this <laughs> virus. And it's like, look at what you all have in common, like your yeah. privilege. And you don't, do you know some, if they knew someone who had died from COVID or was badly affected, they would not be protesting these things. Absolutely so, right. Another one of the, those proof is in the pudding moments. COVID is definitely making me see that. I do feel this veil has been lifted mm-hmm. with COVID where I'm seeing public health and um, racial equality as a crisis. I'm really seeing it. And it's definitely putting some fuel to the fire that I have regarding going into law and looking at how we can legally ensure that these things aren't happening because it's, it's definitely within the training, right? My sister's a nurse. She went through the training and took her oath to treat everyone equally, but she's told me in her experience, she's seen nurses um, and other doctors sort of, okay, yeah. All right. Sure. You know, not believe black and brown women and men too about their pain and about what they're feeling and then that in turn becomes a cycle because then we as black and brown people and women don't believe our own pain and we gaslight yeah. ourselves. And I yes. actually did that this past year when I was feeling the pain, I was like, it's just anxiety. Like, yeah, my heart's palpitating and I have this stabbing pain in my chest, but it's anxiety. Mm. Finally, I was like, this is so bad. My chest plate was swollen and it hurt wow. to the touch. And then I was like, is this breast cancer? <laughs> 
Yeah, of course. I mean, like there's a million things you could go down the WebMD rabbit hole on that one, right? Oh, absolutely. And I went, you know, when I went to the doctor and they were like, it's your ABMs, your disease, you need surgery. I was like, hmm, no, it's okay. I have to go back to school. Um, I have to prioritize my education first because there's too much at stake. Mm. And that's a hundred percent something that folks of color do. Um, You know, first gen, low income people of color with disabilities. We do that so often because honestly, the stakes are too high to prioritize our health um, over, you know, these elitist systems of success and getting to those places of quote unquote success. We will put that before our health. I nearly did that until my doctor was like, Sabrina, if you don't get the surgery, you will not be walking across that stage in May. And I was like, oh, it's like that. Okay. But it was, I was so close to saying no, because I didn't want to miss school. Yeah. Mm. It's really interesting. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering, because obviously you're looking into the future um, and Mm -hmm. how you can affect change from a legal perspective, but tell us also about the advocacy work that you're doing, because you and your mom started a foundation together, right? We did. Yeah, we started a little, um, you could call it a a social change initiative Mm -hmm. online platform called Living with HHT. And it's connected, you know, at at this point, we're getting about 2000 people and getting asked to join the group, like once every day, twice a day from people Mm -hmm. hailing from all over the world, you know, Zealand, Mexico, it's really amazing. Uh, Most of them are English speakers. So we do want to work on creating other linguistic Um, accessibilities like something bilingual with Spanish and eventually moving forward with even more languages but it's connected so many people worldwide where we can you know post pictures and videos like I was saying earlier of these very intimate moments that people with HHT know all too well and it's so validating for people to comment and there will be posts someone will post um I have to get this you know I have to get a colonoscopy what do you recommend I do or how should I go about this and there's like 60 comments and it's all just people with experience of having it no one there is is ever claiming to be a medical professional but we have so much information it's it's amazing to see and it's all word of mouth it's all experience it's all personal anecdotes and home remedies and I think having a rare disease you're in the dark very much in the dark and it's it really is upon each other to, you know, us, ourselves, to create that community and that support system. But it's a really special support system because in the end, having something rare, it, it takes a, a small population of people to come together and make big change. And I think, you know, it's, it's a, a nice project because I was able to do it with my mom and we have other family members involved and we moderate it and ensure that there's good civil dialogue. But for the main, you know, thing, we just want to ins- ensure that everyone has this awareness and this access to information and that there's that community and support system for people to even vent about it. Like, oh, this damn disease, this happened again. And we're like, oh, so sorry, do this, take care of yourself. It's great. You know, it's really been a very important part of my life. And I want to continue ensuring that I can expand it even more. And one day, I definitely want to be on the board of the Cure HHT nonprofit foundation. They do amazing work. But as I mentioned earlier, it's very much all represented by white people, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, Mm. we have to start somewhere, but we need to eventually get the ball rolling and have more diversity and proper representation. Well, it's about time at this point. About time. And so I'm like, okay, it's fine. I have a lot on my plate right now. I'm doing the work I can do in my own little community with living with HHC. But eventually I want to be on the board making decisions and ensuring that the representation is black and brown 
Asian everything. It needs to just be more diverse so that when you see a little brown girl with curly hair having a nosebleed, you're like, oh, okay, so it is, it does affect people like me. This is valid. I am feeling pain. I am, you know, I do have this disease and this disability. I think that's so important. So that's, that's the big picture goal. But as of now, living with HHT is, it's so great. I, I love being able to help run it. And uh, it also brings me closer to my mom and gives mm. her something really nice to do as well. She's made a lot of friends. It's <laughs> amazing. Well, and I'm wondering as well, because, you know, one thing you just touched on in that discussion of your organization, Living with HHT, is this idea of access. And I, I want to know from your point of view, in what ways our health system is working for patients, if at all, and in what ways it's falling short and requiring improvement. Um, you know, access seems to be a big issue here. Can you talk to us about that, especially from your perspective as someone living with a rare blood disorder? Um, yes, Absolutely. First and foremost, if you're poor and without insurance in this country, it doesn't work for you. There is no yeah. health for you. And yeah. I've seen this with direct experience because my mom doesn't have health insurance right now because she doesn't have a full-time job. And I'm like, if this isn't a sign that health insurance shouldn't be correlated to employment, I don't know what it is. And again, with COVID, everyone is seeing it. And I'm like, come on, let's just get this ball rolling on this. Um, so if you don't have insurance, it's extremely hard. And even just trying to get my mom trying to get some sort of private insurance that's even a little bit accessible is so hard. And then, you know, everything with Medicaid and Medicare is very bureaucratic, so many steps. And I think this is a conversation that has been, has been had, you know, very nationally recently and always, actually. I don't quite want to get too much into how that can be fixed or what should be done on that behalf. No, absolutely. And we don't expect you to solve the problem either. (laughs) I do have ideas. I actually was talking because I have my bachelor's in politics. So I'm just a politics nerd with these things. I was just talking to my best friend last night for 10 hours. I'm not even kidding about the healthcare system and ideas that we have and how to even plan out policies and stuff. Like it's possible. We don't have to imagine a country where healthcare is accessible to all. We just have to, vote Republicans out of office. Um, Absolutely. That's a great place to start, right? (laughs) That's a great place to start. Um, And, you know, of course, with racism within the healthcare system, that's definitely an issue. And also in research, medical research is also very racially biased. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yes. That's a very big thing. I think a lot of people overlook, but when you have a rare disease and research is the only thing keeping you alive and it's not being done or it's being done, you know, with a certain lens, it very much affects your life. And I think that's something that we need to talk about more. You know, students who are doing these labs and this research, let's ensure that they have a racial lens on it as well. That would be one good solution. And then just the health system itself really fails people with mental health issues and mental disabilities as well. I'm glad you're bringing that up too, because this is something that comes up a lot in our interviews, right? Particularly among women of color, that there's a mental health aspect to living with chronic illness, right? And we know from statistics, we know that the the healthcare system is failing people who have mental health, mental illness concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you have a chronic illness, there's often a mental health factor to be considered here too, right? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, I guess this will get a bit personal, but why not? I have had experiences in a mental health hospital when I was a junior in college. This was about two years ago. And my experience in a mental health hospital was extremely traumatizing. I was there for three days and I want to recognize that that was because 
I was able to get out in the minimum legal amount of time because I was advocating for myself and pulling out these points and these statistics and showing that I was fine. When in reality, when I was there, I had a nurse tell me, no, 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 don't cry or else they're not going to let you out. I can't cry in a mental health hospital or else they're Mm going to think I need to stay here longer, even though it it was a very terrible place to be in. There was no healing. Um, The approaches they had to, I mean, I think a lot of the the social workers who were going in there and the psychologists, like, of course they had good intentions, but I think the system itself was more the issue. How are we training healthcare professionals to deal with mental health patients? How are we um, criminalizing them? What are we saying to them when we're putting them in quote unquote violent wards? I was put in the second most violent ward when I was there and everyone in that ward, there was one man and he was suffering from um, substance abuse issues. There was one white woman also suffering from substance abuse issues. Everyone else there was either indigenous, brown, or a trans woman or a woman. Wow. And I just looked around and I remember being like, where are my rights? Like, where are my rights? Where can I read that? Why don't I have someone coming in and telling me these are, these are your rights. This is how this goes. If they do this, that's illegal. They do this, they can be fired. I had this one male nurse condescend me so badly. He was like, I was like, do you know how long I'm going to have to be here? Of course, there I was again um, being like, I need to get out. I have to go back to school. I have to go back to school. I have to go back. I mean, that also ties into the pressures that students feel, especially in the undergraduate system. But, you know, I felt for a long time that the educational system isn't serving people either because we always hear about people having flares, their first flare. It's when they're in college. Mm -hmm. I mean, for you, you were diagnosed a lot earlier, but the stresses that are put on students, both mentally and physically, mm-hmm. no wonder so many students need mental health support as well. And this is then directly correlated, particularly if you are black or brown, directly mm-hmm. correlated to the prison justice system, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. No, for sure. And also, if you're trans and you're in these circumstances, um, yes. actually someone who became like a friend of mine, he was being extremely misgendered. And I didn't even know that he was trans because of the misgendering and the name, changing of the name until I was leaving. And he gave me his number and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I felt so mm. terrible. You know, these, there's so many intersections and within the LGBTQ community and healthcare, and then you, you add in race. That was another big factor of when I was looking around, you know, in the little community gathering center when it was all of us patients there. And I was like, wow. It just really, it gave me such a new perspective about our health system and about how we deal with disabilities that are invisible, how we criminalize mental health issues and how racialized it really is. And not that it was, it was, it was an important experience for me to go through that. It was life-changing and it definitely expanded my view on disability rights as well. Um, And definitely I will highlight that a lot of my ability to experience it but not live it regarding the mental health system is because of my privilege with education, but it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that it's gone away. Um, I also have insurance, which has helped me to get on medication, and it's definitely a, a game changer, but someone like my mother who also suffers, she suffers from extremely bad depression. I mean, she mm-hmm. had to bury her own son at 17 years old from a disease she gave him. Yeah, she Absolutely. Suffered- how do you not have depression when you've gone through that? Absolutely. And she, she can't even get her own medication, her own SSRIs, because she doesn't have insurance. Wow. Um, and it, it, there's so many layers to it. Um, and that's, that's about the issue of, of the system also being for profit too, right? That like, aside from the criminalization yeah. of 
people who are non-white within the system. It also mm -hmm. is excluding non-white people from access to mm. healthcare as a human right. And not just that, but I mean, you also mentioned something before we hit record, which was about access not only to healthcare, but also like people living in food deserts, access to good organic food to keep your health in a, in a stable place so that you mm. don't end up having to rely on the system as much. I mean, all of these factors affect black and brown communities at much higher rates, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm also wondering, um, we're going to sort of slide into like the end portion of the interview here. And I, I feel like I've learned so much from you today. And I, I wondered if you could offer your top three tips for someone who maybe suspects they've got something off. Maybe they, they've got HHD, but they're living with some kind of invisible disability. What top three tips would you offer to people who are living that spoony life like you and me? No, absolutely. I think tip one is to write down your symptoms and to keep a journal. And if possible, let's say you are having nosebleeds. Okay, I'm going to get this journal. Had a nosebleed on this day at this time. And then maybe you can mark something that helped it. Maybe you used a tampon, put a tampon up your nose and clogged it and it helped. I've done that in public. I don't care. It works. I <laughs> that down. Maybe I knew I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, no, absolutely. Or, you know, maybe there's something that exacerbated the nosebleed. Maybe you ate something spicy. And so you write that down. And it truly helps doctors to find these patterns and these similarities. So when you go to visit them, you know, you also look more credible if you have a journal rather than just saying, oh, I think I had this. I think I did that. And it helps you too, to keep track of it for your own health. Like if you keep bleeding, you don't realize it. There could be a possibility you need an iron transfusion or you need to check your hemoglobin or you could be anemic. Or, you know, in the past, I used to constantly chew ice and I remember going and being anemic and they said, oh, that's actually kind of correlated to people who chew ice uh, suffer from anemia. And I'm like, wow, if you know, you have this journey, you keep track of it. That's one very important tip. Second, kind of related to this, but you know, you can't, you can't assume everyone has access to health care to go to a doctor. So this is where, you know, unfortunately we have to come in and do that labor on our, on our own, do a bit of research, not necessarily WebMD. But, you know, consider what it could be that you're experiencing, typing in those symptoms, doing a little bit of cross-referencing, and let's say you find something, okay, it could be hypertension disorder, or it could be um, hemophilia, or it could be HHT, one of these blood diseases. Well, with hemophilia, your blood can't clot. With HHT, you need to clot your blood to stop it. So that could be a big difference. And then let's say, okay, my blood doesn't clot hemophilia. Let me look up hemophilia um, help groups or support groups, and then cross-reference what you have with those people and see what similarities you might share with them. And it's a very important first step to then going to have a healthcare professional properly diagnose you or to go to a genetics lab, which people with genetic diseases have to do that. And um, seeing what you have and catching it as early as possible, because that is the difference um, between life and death. That's exactly the issue we had with my brother. We caught it when he was 16 and he died a year later. So, you know, severe parts of it. We caught HHC when he was younger. I think he was like 10. But even then, keeping track with it and keep going back for those checkups. So many different aspects. But the main thing is, you know, start with that research. And this then, is really a primer in self-advocacy too, which I, I love. Yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. is. Um, and then I think... The third important thing is believe yourself. 
don't gaslight yourself, especially if you are surrounded by people who are telling you, no, I don't, I don't think that's real, or it's, it might be this, it might be that, who are trying to tell you. Otherwise, listen to your body, trust your body, and don't sweep it under the rug to prioritize your education or your work. It will always be there. I know the stakes are high, but if that school or institution or job doesn't want to work with you, then they're ableist and they don't deserve you. Yes. Believe yourself. Clapping. I'm clapping over here. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. No, believe yourself. Follow up Mm. with that and validate your pain or what you're feeling or certain symptoms and say, these are real disabilities with that are invisible are real. And I'm going to go see how I can get help for this. Mm. Yeah. I love it. What about your top three things in life that give you unbridled joy? This is one of my favorite questions because it's a really great way to get more personal with this stuff too. Mm -hmm. I want to know about things that, you know, you might've made these lifestyle changes to work around your symptoms, you know, maybe cutting back on spicy food, as you mentioned, or, you know, carrying that tampon for your nose when you need to. But (laughs) I want to know about the top three things that you're unwilling to compromise on. These can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities, especially if you're having a bad bleed, Mm -hmm. but top three things that just make your life full and complete and joyful. Yes. I would say my first thing is solo traveling or just traveling in general with a backpack, a tight budget, roughing it out um, in hostels. Maybe there's like eight people to a room, you know, stuff like that where you're really forced to meet new people and to also get out of your own comfort zone and get that idea that traveling has to be like luxurious and touristy and all this, like getting really down and dirty with where you are. Not dirty necessarily, um, but just you know, being real with the meeting local stuff like that. And um, it is a privilege to be able to travel and to get on a plane and to easily, you know, carry a 60 pound backpack here and there and do these things. But of course, there's always those moments where I will have a nosebleed or I'll get really tired or, you know, there's things I can't do. Like I can't skydive. I can't bungee jump. Um, I can't do the deep water swimming. Like scuba diving. Yeah, that one. I can't do that. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of things that I can't do physically or roller coasters. Unfortunately, I can't do those anymore. Oh, wow. I don't do Fright Fest because if I get too scared, I might bleed and then hop off on whoever scared me and then get kicked out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It turns into their own horror fest. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, But that's the main thing. I love to travel and meet people. And when I meet people, I've actually had this happen to me twice where I've stayed in a room with, you know, six people and one of them is a doctor. I remember two, two women I met who were both doctors, one from Australia and one from uh, the UK. And they both had heard of HHT very well. They knew a lot about it. And it was amazing to be like, wow, my roommate is a doctor who's heard of HHT. Mm, that's and very cool. Spreading, yeah, spreading that awareness, um, you know, globally, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say my second thing mm-hmm. is being unapologetically Puerto Rican and proud. I <laughs> love it. Boricua. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not willing to compromise my black and brown roots to fit into a white structure of what it means to be educated, successful, or valid. And that includes in the advocacy realm for my rare disease, in the legal realm, in law school, even in undergraduate. I actually wrote two out of my three main essays for my senior project. One of them was on disability rights in reunified Germany. And the other one was about activism during the 60s, um, carried out by the radical group called the Young Lords. They were a Black and Puerto Rican group. And I'm always going to sit there and bring my culture and my pride to the table. Any table that I demand a seat at, you're going to see a proud brown Puerto Rican Boricua woman. Love it. 
Um, and then my third one, on the note of being a woman, mm-hmm. I am not willing to compromise expressing my sexuality. Definitely not willing to compromise that, you know, whether it's dressing androgynously or posting a picture of my bikini on Instagram or even my queerness. I'm not going to sit there and um, shrink that or minimize that. I just think that the era of trying to say, you know, this patriarchal understanding that sexuality and success are mutually exclusive if you're a woman. That's not, that's over with. (laughs) That's a Mm. thing of the past. Women can express their sexuality as much as they want and still have their bachelors and still be educated, still be smart regardless of their level of education or the piece of paper that they have from an institution. They can express themselves. They can be sex workers and still be successful, still be everything, still be valid. And that's not something I want to compromise, especially as an advocate for a lot of different things. I want to still be Sabrina. I want to still feel confident and post pictures in whatever I'm wearing or however I look or with whomever and still be that person and that advocate. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not willing to compromise that and say that they're mutually exclusive because they're not. That's just, you know, it's a very gendered sort of thing that people still hold. And it's just, it's over with. (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's amazing. I want to also know as we tie things up here, what's your ask for listeners today? What can listeners do to support you and your community and the work that you're doing? How can everyone support you? First and foremost, believe black and brown women Yes. <laughs> and trans folks, believe them if they say they have pain, if they are suffering from something, or if they're in your ward, you're their nurse or doctor, if you're listening to this, believe them, make that your priority to believe them. Hmm. Um, regarding HHT, another ask would be if you know someone who suffers from nosebleeds often, or might have red spots on their body, maybe you see it on their tongue and the inside of their lips, anywhere really on the skin, um, please reach out to me or go to curehht.org because it could be HHT, it could be another blood disease, but it could definitely be something bigger than just a nosebleed here or there. Mm-hmm. Um, cause as I mentioned earlier, 90% of HHT, HHT patients experience nosebleeds, but 90% are also not diagnosed. Yeah. So there's a, that, that's a big ask. And mm. If you know someone with a rare disease, don't invalidate their experience because that is also a form of ableism. You know, disabilities manifest in such different ways. Like I mentioned earlier with my cousin in a wheelchair, my brother who passed away, and then there's me. Obviously, we we all have the same issue. It's just manifested differently for each of us. And it's definitely really hard in the disability advocacy space to feel as if it's not enough what I'm going through, but I also think it's important to take space and make space. So I will definitely have that be the main takeaway, but also listen, as I said, believe Mm -hmm. and try your best to check yourself. If you might be saying something or doing something that's ableist, it's a process of unlearning, just like with any other ism. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing is, you know, of course, just believing, especially black and brown women when they about these things and validating their experiences rather than trying to put it in a box or understand it through a lens that excludes part of their identity. Yes. So true. All right. Last question for you. What's next in your advocacy and wellness journey? What's next for you? What's next for living with HHT? What's next? The biggest thing is law school. That's the next big step. I will be matriculating 
in 2022 and future Sabrina, if you hear this and you haven't started, get on it. Um, <laughs> it, it no, it definitely will be happening. I'm currently studying for the LSAT, so there's no going back at this point. Um, yeah. But that's the next big step. And with uh, JD, I want to maybe going to, there's a lot of options. First and foremost, continue being an advocate for people with disabilities and chronic and rare diseases. And I think I could do that in a lot of spaces. It would be amazing to become a judge down the line. It'd be amazing to do trial advocacy work and present things to a jury. It'd also be amazing to be a lobbyist. It would be amazing to work for this nonprofit called NORD, National Organization for Rare Diseases. They do great work. NORD, are you listening? Sabrina wants a job. (laughs) In five years. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, it would be amazing to do any of that work. But within any legal space that I'm, I'm going to be in in the future, I will always bring HD into the conversation. Disability rights, mental health, invisible disabilities, the spectrum of disability, you know, neuroatypicality, all these things. I will ensure and make it my life goal to bring that up in all the conversations that I have in the legal realm when we're talking about discrimination and the lack thereof of civil rights and protection and resources that go into our communities. And I think I will continue figuring out where to go with that. I'm going to keep following the wave with what I'm doing with living with HHT and expanding it more and seeing just where I can take that with a JD as, you know, a woman of color and as someone who with advocating for it can sit there and say, no, I have it. Do not try to gaslight me. (laughs) Don't try to turn down this community from what they deserve. We are sitting here and demanding it. And I think with a JD, you know, unfortunately, that's just how these elite systems work. But with the JD, I hope I will be taken more seriously to make bigger waves. I don't know. I take you pretty seriously already. So <laughs> the, the more serious we get, the better. I want you to run for office because I'm ready to vote for you already. So um, it's just been <laughs> such a pleasure having you on the show today, Sabrina. Can you tell everyone where they can also find you and find your organization online? Yes, um, you can find me. The best thing is Facebook. I am, my name is Sabrina Marie Vera on Facebook. You'll see in my little bio, it says hashtag CureHHT. And if you send me a message about it, I can add you to the group and send you all the resources within the group, introduce you to people, and we can keep those conversations going from there. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's not, my Instagram has a lot of advocacy stuff about HHT, but it really is my page to post my pictures from traveling and yes, bikini pictures. I'm not trying to plug you claim that you claim it. It's, it's amazing and beautiful. You claim it all. Yes. It's definitely different from my Facebook though. So maybe if you want to follow me for really my fun stuff and who I am, but also I post a lot of advocacy stuff on there too. My Instagram handle is at I am very V E R Y Vera V E R A. <laughs> I love it. Well, Sabrina, it has been such an honor having you on the show today. I can't wait for this one to reach the airwaves and you've taught us so much. Thank you for all the work you do for the HHT community and beyond. We look forward to continuing to follow your work and see what happens in your future. You're a bright rising star. I mean, you guys, this girl's only in her early twenties. She's got so much left to do, so much work to do ahead of her uh, to serve the community. So Sabrina, thank you so much. It's been such a joy speaking to you today. Thank you so much. And I hope my voice doesn't sound weird when I listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone always has that concern about being recorded, but look, this is the first of many interviews to come that feature you. So you better start getting used to it soon. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lauren. Have a great day, everyone listening and Cure HHT. 
That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.